Hello, welcome to Out of Your Shell Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I'm Brent Walsh. I am currently driving through New Mexico. It's about seven o'clock in the morning and the sun is coming up over the mountains. New Mexico has a lot of flat land and it also has a lot of mountains. Right now I am seeing the sun coming up in the east I'm driving east, so that's always fun. I have a little strip of Velcro on the underside of my sun visor so that when the sun is sitting right on the highway and I'm struggling to see the road, I have a little black corrugated plastic board and I just stick it on the Velcro right there on the sun visor so that I get a little bit extra shielding from the bright sun in the morning. I use that in the evening as well when I am driving west and the sun is going down in my eyes. So you may wonder how I am recording a podcast going down the road. My new toy is a fancy little contraption where there's two lapel mics and a little receiver thingy that sticks into the bottom of the iPhone. That's what it's called on the box. It says receiver thingy. And so I don't have any cords. I'm just talking into a lapel mic while I have both hands on the wheel. So if any of you are concerned about my safety while I am podcasting going down the road, just know that it is very much like you're sitting in the seat next to me. So I thought I would take this opportunity to share some of the things that people have often asked me about life in the trucking industry. One of the things that a lot of people wonder is, where do you sleep? Now, some trucks are called day cabs because you don't actually sleep in them. You get up in the morning out of your own bed at home, you drive to work, you hop in the truck, you make your deliveries, and then you park the truck, get back in your car and go home. So you don't actually sleep in those. If you do have overnights in those, then the company will often send you to a hotel. But hotels would be very costly for companies if all the drivers were to sleep in hotels. So in order to avoid that, the industry has created really nice trucks for the drivers to use. And they have sleeper berths. And some trucks have a single bunk, and some trucks have a double bunk. So it's kind of like bunk beds. And then there's storage in various spots. They do a good job of trying to utilize all the empty space for storage. And then some trucks come equipped with a refrigerator, a little, like a little mini fridge, and a microwave or TV. The truck I'm currently driving is one of the nicest trucks that I've ever driven. The company that I drive for prioritizes driver comfort. And so in this truck, I have a built-in refrigerator. They supplied a microwave and a TV and a satellite system. So whenever it's time for me to shut down and take a break, I have access to food, a way to cook the food, entertainment, a way to relax. It's really nice. So in a very real way, the truck becomes like your home. 
In fact, there have been times when I have gone to visit friends at various places around the country, and instead of staying in their home, I would just go back to my truck and sleep in my own bed because the mattresses that they put in these trucks are are really nice. I've never really had too many trucks where the bed was uncomfortable. And when I have encountered those mattresses, I have just gone to my local department store and gotten one of those memory foam pads, put it on the bed, and voila, got a nice little sleeping situation. So sleeping in your truck is actually not as uncomfortable as it might sound. There were a lot of years when I actually just lived on the road. I didn't have an apartment. I didn't have a car. I didn't have to pay for insurance. I didn't have to pay for utilities. I was a paid tourist, as some people call it. I was able to just live on the road, earn the money that I earned, and not have to spend it on things that I wasn't going to be using very often. And then I would have my mail go to, like, my parents' house, or on occasion, I've had a friend who has offered to let me have my mail come to their house because maybe they're positioned in a convenient location for me to pass through every now and then and collect mail. But these days, a lot of things are available electronically. All of your banking is available and anything that you pay for, like cell phones or television subscriptions, all of that is available to the truck drivers just electronically. So that's helpful. That's a way in which the Internet age really helps the trucking community. One thing we don't have in our trucks is showers. Now, some very fancy trucks are like RVs inside and they have like toilets and showers and all of that. Most trucks do not have a shower and we don't have running water of any kind. So the showers that we take are available at the truck stops. In fact, truck stops often compete with each other by luring drivers in with their fancy showers. So there are loyalty programs for the various kinds of truck stops. Like you have the the Pilot and Flying J chain. You have the TA and the Petro. The TA stands for Travel Centers of America. And then you have the Loves truck stops throughout the country. And then you have a lot of truck stops that are not affiliated with any kind of a chain. So you have these truck stops that are competing for the truck driver's business. So when they advertise that, you know, you can come and top off your tanks and get a clean, hot shower. And they'll have like uh, either fast food restaurants or sit down restaurants that you can relax and have a meal. So the, the showers are, are actually pretty nice. They normally cost about 15 or $20 to take a shower. But if you get fuel, you know, at that chain, let's say I like to fuel at Love's. So every time I get fuel at Love's, I will get a credit for a free shower and a free beverage refill. That's their loyalty program. And then there will be points that accumulate. For every gallon of fuel you purchase, you'll get a a certain number of points based on your level of loyalty. So if you get fuel at a truck stop and then you, you have a credit for a free shower, you have up to 10 days to use that credit. So if you're just getting fuel and you've got to keep rolling, you can stop later that day or the next day at one of their truck stops and that credit will be available to you. 
moments to take a shower at your convenience. So when you're ready to take a shower, you redeem your shower credit. And if there's no line, then you'll, you'll get assigned a shower right away. But a lot of times there's a line of drivers waiting to take a shower. So you wait in line. And then as soon as it's your turn, your number will be called and you'll be assigned a shower room. There's often 10 or 15 showers at a truck stop. And when you're assigned a shower room, you're given a code, like usually a five-digit code or something. And you walk to your shower room and you press in the code and that unlocks the door. And then you enter the shower room and what you see in front of you is a room with a shower, a toilet, a sink with a counter and a mirror, hand towels. They'll also provide you with a bath towel and a a hand towel and a washcloth. So the only thing you really need to take in with you is your toiletries and your change of clothes. And then you go in, you take your shower. There is no time limit, so you can take a nice long hot shower. And as soon as you're done, you leave the towels in the room and there's a little alert system that notifies the truck stop staff that you're finished with that room. And they'll come in and they will clean and disinfect the room and the shower stall and everything. And then they will make it available to the next driver. So due to the fact that there's typically a line of drivers waiting for showers, it is often challenging to take a shower every day Some drivers prioritize that, and they take a shower every day without fail. So it is possible, but I would say most drivers do not do that. A lot of times, a driver will carry on on their truck with them, like wet wipes or disposable bath towelettes, things like that. And on the day when they are not showering, they'll wipe down with their towelettes, and they'll shower every other day or whatever their convenient schedule is for showering. So that's how it works. A lot of drivers will take their toothbrush and toothpaste into the bathrooms in the morning and wash their face and brush their teeth and get ready for the day. But yeah, it's pretty easy to stay clean and hygienic out here. Another question that I often get is, What is the deal with those emergency ramps in the mountains? I'm sure you've seen these. You're going in, you know, through the mountains and there'll be signs that say emergency exit one mile. And then you'll come up on that emergency exit and you'll see that it basically is just like a little driveway to nowhere. And um, so, so basically what that is, is when a truck is fully loaded and they're going down a mountain, if they experience any kind of equipment failure or if their brakes get too hot, then they will lose control of their vehicle. And that emergency ramp is designed to stop a truck that's barreling down a highway, a mountain, out of control. Some emergency ramps use barrels of sand to stop you. So you'll be basically plowing into barrels of sand one after another until your vehicle slows and stops. It does significant damage to your grill for sure, but it saves your life and it saves the life of people on the roadway with you. 
there's also a type of emergency ramp where they basically use sand and pea gravel. So when you leave the roadway and enter into this emergency ramp, your truck basically just sinks down into this sand and pea gravel. So basically you're being stopped by the fact that you're sinking. Other ramps use gravity. In this case, you'll leave the roadway, enter the emergency ramp, and suddenly you'll just be going straight up, straight up the side of a mountain. And of course, you can only go so far before gravity will stop you. They'll probably use like a combination of gravity and the sand and pea gravel method. Now, what some people don't understand is there are sensors that are laid across the the exit ramp so that as soon as a vehicle crosses over those sensors, it trips a wire and an alarm goes off to alert law enforcement, emergency vehicles, hazardous materials response team, fire trucks. Basically, if you trip that wire, you'll have an entire fleet of emergency vehicles descending upon you to make sure that everything is okay. Because nobody takes those exits unless something's gone wrong. They'll also notify a tow truck because typically if you've taken one of those exits, you're not going to be able to just back out and go on your way. You're going to have to be towed out of those emergency ramps. And it will be a pretty costly event because whoever owns that truck will get the bill for all of those emergency vehicles, the tow truck, and the process of restoring that emergency ramp to its original condition so that it's ready for the next truck that loses control. So it it can be costly, but it is designed to save lives. In my years of training student drivers, I have prioritized teaching them how to take a truck safely down a mountain. And the way you do that is by reducing the gears that you're in. There's typically 10 to 12 gears in a truck. And so you want to downshift all the way down to like eighth gear, depending on your weight and the grade of the mountain. Um, So reducing the gears that you're in, reducing your speed. If you notice going downhill, there's a lot of trucks that have their four-way flashers on and they're going really slow down the hill they have a type of engine brake that's available to take some of the stress off of the brakes. The engine brake is called a Jake brake. The reason it's called a Jake brake is because it was designed by someone named Jacob. I don't remember his last name, but he designed these engine brakes and they have a variety of different names. Sometimes they're called exhaust brakes, compression brakes, engine brakes, Jake brakes a variety of different names that they have, but they're all the same thing. And basically they use a feature of your engine to slow your truck down so that you're not relying completely on the brake pedal. The reason brakes might fail in a vehicle is because if you think about the fact you have a metal wheel rim and then you have these brake pads that press against that rim and create friction. The friction will slow you down, but it'll also create heat. And if you produce enough friction, it will make those wheel rims hotter and hotter. And what happens to metal when it gets hot is it expands. 
so your brake pads are pressing against these hot wheel rims that are expanding. And so then you have to press a little harder and the brake pads have to travel a little further to get to the wheel rims. And then the rims keep expanding. The brake pads can only go so far. And when they reach the end of their reach and the rims keep expanding because they keep getting hotter and hotter, and eventually you don't have anything pressing against those rims because the brake pads have reached the the end of their reach, which results in brake failure. And then you have no brakes. So that's what happens when a truck is carrying a really heavy load down a mountain and they're not operating their vehicle correctly. If they're going too fast, they're going to have to rely on those brakes. So the better option is to go slower, reduce your speed, reduce your gear, and allow your engine to work harder and provide less stress on those brakes. And when you do that, you'll never have to use one of those emergency ramps. I remember when I first started a job at a trucking school, I had been driving for about 11 years at that point. And so I knew my stuff. I was ready to teach other people. But when I got into training on how to teach people how to drive a truck, I quickly realized that the things that I knew um, were basically how to turn a key and how to move a vehicle down the road. I didn't really know how to tell someone what I was seeing, what I was looking for, how I was performing the maneuvers. I just knew how to do it. And so I would do it. But telling someone how you're doing it is a very different thing. And it's a lot harder. So I had a lot to learn. So when I first started, I had to go out with the chief trainer and he was responsible for training the trainers how to train and how to teach people how to drive trucks. So the chief trainer's name is Walter. And I went out with Walter and he was a very gentle guy. If you can just imagine this tall, lanky black guy with a a beard and a ball cap and this beautiful smile and this gentle spirit And he sat in the passenger seat and he would ask me questions. First, he would, you know, just let me drive and he would just observe while I drove. And he would, you know, point to to turn right, to go straight, go ahead and back in over here, parallel park. And he would just observe. And then the next time I drove, he would ask me questions. How did you just do that? What were you looking at when you decided to make the turn when you did? Why did you turn your wheel left instead of right? Why didn't you turn your wheel all the way? Why did you just feather it? And I didn't know the answer to these questions. And so he taught me how to observe myself and how to pay attention to what it was I was looking for and what was a good cue to prompt me to turn my wheel one way or another. Tell you what, by the end of the first day, I went home and Walter didn't know whether I was going to come back the next day because, man, it was a hard day. I felt like an absolute fool. I didn't know how I knew how to drive. I just knew how to drive. And so it was tough. It was really hard. When I showed up for work the next day, he was like, oh, you're back. (laughs) He didn't know whether I was going to come back because it was tough. But I came back and I tried again. And he eventually taught me how to teach. So after about three or four months of teaching skills, how to back, how to drive in the city, how to drive on the interstate, you know, the different backing maneuvers, 
parallel parking and jackknife parking and all of the things. After about three or four months of that, the classroom instructor resigned and the supervisor decided that she would ask me if I would want to work in the classroom. Well, not only had I been driving for 11 years, but now I knew how to teach it. So I said, sure, I would be happy to become the classroom instructor. And so she handed me a manual and she says, okay, you start on Monday. Here you go. And I was expecting to have an instructor to, you know, to, to watch maybe for the first week and see how they taught the class. But when I got there on Monday, it was just me and a manual. And there I stood with a classroom full of expectant prospective drivers who wanted to learn all of the classroom stuff. And I tell you what, I, I started all over again, <laughs> feeling like a fool because I knew how to press my foot on a brake, but I did not know what would happen on the other side of that brake pedal. So air brake components was the first class that I was supposed to teach on Monday morning. And I stood up there and I read from the manual and prayed that no one would raise their hand and ask any questions because I had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. And I looked up and someone had their hand in the air and I gave them kind of a deer in the headlights look and just quivered in my boots while they asked the question. So basically the question was, I understand what you're reading, but I don't really understand how it works. Can you, can you explain it more? And I got nothing because I didn't understand it either. And so I looked down, I flipped pages in the manual, and I said, hold on just a second. Let's take a five-minute break. And so I went rushing down the hall, and I found Walter, and I said, I need you in the classroom because they're asking me questions about these air brakes, and I don't know any more than they do how these air brakes work. So can you please come in here and, like, teach the class? And Walter, in his kind, gentle way, looked down at me and said, this is your baby. You got to go in there and you got to teach this class. But let me tell you how these brakes work real quick. And so I laser focused <laughs> all of my attention on the words he said. And it went something like this. So when the truck is parked, the brakes are set with the brake pads pressed firmly against the rim, and there's no way to move that vehicle. The way you release the brakes is you push air into the chamber. Now, before you go cross-eyed, let's just say that the only way to get the brake pads to move away from the rim is by blowing air between the brake pads and the rim. And it takes a lot of air to move those brake pads away because they're pressed up against there really hard. And so in the cab of the truck, there's a button. And as soon as you push that button in, air flows through the system and goes to that brake chamber and it pushes really, really hard. When you get about 60 pounds of pressure, it will start pushing those brake pads away from the rim. And then the air gets stronger and stronger 
and it keeps pushing and pushing. And when it gets to about 125 pounds, finally, the air is strong enough to push the brake pads away from the rim so that the wheel can turn. It's kind of like an arm wrestle where you have a really, really strong brake pad and then you add enough air and you keep adding it until it overpowers the brake pad and pushes it back. And then you can start rolling down the road. But if you start losing air, that brake pad will start overpowering the air. And if the air gets weaker, the brake pad gets closer and closer to the rim until finally it overpowers the air and the brakes bring the vehicle to a screeching halt. So what's happening when you hear someone set their brakes is they pull that little knob out and it takes all the air out of that brake chamber. And that's where you hear the sound that sounds like, that's the air coming out of those brake chambers. And without any air in there, the natural rest of those brakes is with the pads pressed firmly against the rim. So that's why it's so important to have a steady flow of air in the system on a tractor trailer. So when Walter explained that to me very quickly in about two minutes, I was able to go back in the classroom, teach them what I had learned, and we were able to continue with the class. But I tell you what, that was another steep learning curve for me, trying to learn how to teach students in a classroom, all of the different things that they needed to know in order to go and pass their written exam at the driver's license facility. Another question I get is about way stations. So the federal government has a branch called the Department of Transportation. And that is the governing body that makes the rules for the trucking industry. And one of the rules is about weight. You're not allowed to be any heavier than 80,000 pounds. So that means if you combine the weight of the equipment, the truck, the tractor and the trailer empty, and then you add the amount of cargo in the back of the trailer, the combination cannot be any heavier than 80,000 pounds. That's 40 tons. And further, that has to be evenly distributed across the entire vehicle. So those way stations are the enforcers of those rules. When they pull trucks into the way stations, the truck will drive over a scale plate that will weigh their three different axles. So it used to be that they would open the way station and trucks would file through one at a time, drive up on that scale, and then be told whether they could go or whether they had to pull around for an inspection. So sometimes the way station would be completely backed up and trucks would be lined up all the way out to the interstate. And that could be a travel hazard. So in order to avoid that, the Department of Transportation came up with a system called pre-pass. And what that means is there are certain trucks that don't have to go into the way station. Now there's different systems in different parts of the country. Sometimes there is a little scale plate out on the highway that you drive over at full speed and it very quickly detects how heavy you are on each of your axles. And if it suspects that you're overweight on one of your axles, it will give you a signal inside your cab 
So the transponder will communicate with a receiver box on the inside of your cab, and it will give you either a green light or a red light. If it senses that you're overweight, it will give you a red light. That means you have to come into the way station. If it gives you a green light, that indicates that you can keep driving and you don't have to stop. But not all way stations have that pressure plate on the roadway. Sometimes they determine whether you have to come in to the way station or not just by the reputation of your company. And so very quickly, that transponder will pick up the information from your receiver box on the inside of the cab, and it will identify your company, your truck number, your registration, and it will quickly decide whether you're on the list of approved carriers to bypass the way stations. If your company has a good reputation for compliance with the DOT regulations, then you're more likely to get the green light so you can just pass on by. Now, not all trucks have these receiver boxes. It's something that you sign up for, kind of like those toll transponders that, that pay a toll while you're going full speed through the toll collection lane. But if you don't sign up for it, then you have to go into all the way stations because there's nothing to tell you that you can keep driving. There are other times when the Department of Transportation will pull everyone in. Like if there's an all points bulletin for a fugitive, they're looking for a certain make or model truck. So sometimes you're getting pulled in, not because of anything that you did, but just because everyone's getting pulled in because they need to take a look at all the trucks. Or maybe they are checking for registration stickers if you have a current registration, you'll get a sticker to put on the outside of your truck so it's easily identified. And since each year has its own color, if the officer looks out the window and you have last year's color of registration sticker on your truck, then you're more likely to get asked to bring in all your paperwork so that they can do an audit of your registration. So there's different reasons why you might get pulled into a way station, but having that pre-pass is really helpful. It saves a lot of time because if there's a long line of trucks, it's so nice just to be able to pass right on by and keep driving. Finally, one last thing that I get asked about on occasion, and that is fuel. What kind of fuel mileage does the truck get and how many gallons of fuel can your truck hold? Well, some trucks that get poor fuel mileage will get like five or six miles to the gallon. And some trucks that get really good fuel mileage get nine or 10 miles to the gallon, but the average is about seven or eight. The standard amount of fuel that a truck can hold is about 200 gallons. There's a tank on each side of the truck and each tank is a hundred gallon tank. So when you pull into the truck stop and you pull into the fuel island, they have what they call the primary pump typically on the left side of your truck where you enter in all your information and get the pump activated. And then you have a satellite pump that is automatically activated as soon as the primary pump is activated. And the satellite pump is on the other side of your truck. So you start on the driver's side, you put the nozzle into the fuel tank and you get that started. And then you walk around to the other side of your truck and you put the satellite nozzle into the other tank and it will fuel both tanks at the same time. So you're typically getting about 100 to 150 gallons every time you fuel. 
you usually don't want to go below a quarter of a tank before you get fuel. Because if you run out of fuel in a diesel engine, it can actually destroy your fuel filters. You get air in the engine and it causes a lot of trouble. It's not as big of a deal to run a gasoline vehicle out of fuel because you just get more gasoline and you pour it in the tank and you're good to go. But for a diesel engine, if you run out of fuel, you need repairs. So you want to make sure you're getting fuel no later than a quarter of a tank. So that's what I've got for you today. I hope you enjoyed hearing about some of the things that people have asked me about in the trucking industry. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Out of Your Shell Podcast. If you want to get in touch with me, feel free to drop me a line at brentwalsh at outofyourshell.coach. Until then, stay safe out there. Keep the shiny side up and the greasy side down. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you.